Hello and welcome to episode number 49 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan DeFrancesco. I'm the deputy editor of Cellside Technology and Waters Technology. And today I am not joined by my typical co-host, Anthony Maliki. Instead, I'm joined by both the boss to both Anthony and I, Victor Anderson, uh, the editor, the longtime editor-in-chief of Waters and Waters Technology. Victor, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, so I think what would be best, you know, you've been with Incisive for a while now, so let's, just to give the listeners a little bit of your background, when did you initially join Incisive and with what publication were you were you first with Incisive? Okay, um, yeah, it's a really good question because um, I, I remember actually really clearly, and the reason why is because I started on the 1st of August 2001. Um, and literally five weeks before um, the September the 11th attacks. Um, and um, some of our viewers might not be aware of the fact that um, on that day, um, Waters had um, an event on, on in, the, um, in the North Tower on the 106th floor, Windows of the World. And, um, and it, uh, we, we lost... Um, we lost 16 staff members that day and a, and a lot of delegates. Um, there were 50 or so, maybe more delegates um, at the event. And um, and that kind of changed, you know, that left a, a kind of a, a, a huge mark on, on the publication. Um, the entire staff was uh, sadly died that day. And um, I, I, I was... Ironically, actually, when I when I joined the company, uh, Matthew Crabb, uh, my MD at the time, um, suggested that I, I, I be at that uh, conference. But I'd been training for a, a triathlon, and um, and I'd done quite a bit of training, and, I, and I'd really paid, and and I just said, listen, you know, do you mind if I maybe go to the next one? And it was just one of those quirks of fate that I wasn't there that day. Um, wow. But yeah, it was. Um, it. it, it yeah, and there aren't very many staff members left at the company. I know Lee Hart, um, long-time publisher of, of Waters magazine. Um, he had he was here at the company, and Steve Cooling and one or two others um, were at the company. Um, they had friends there. They they had been at the company for longer than I had, and so they, they knew those staff members much better than I did. Um, but there aren't very many left um, who were here um, du- you know, during the time when those attacks uh, took place. Yeah. yeah, it's a story that I think a lot of listeners might not know that aren't as familiar with Waters. Um, but, you know, having the, the conference there on the top of the windows of the world and, you know, essentially losing, you know, basically the entire team. Um, it is it's you know, everyone was impacted one way or another, you know, by the, you know, right. the attacks on September 11th. But really incisive, you know, in, in a big way was. And there's actually I'm sure you're familiar with there was a great column written i believe it was the in the next issue of waters i think it was from i'm not victor you can help me out here um it was it the the publisher or something that he had gone back to pick up more magazines and yeah no what it was it was it's written by a, a a gentleman by the name of peter fields who was the um the owner of the company at the time wasn't a tight media the company at the time was called risk waters the Risk Waters Group, mm-hmm. and Peter Field was the um, was the chief executive of the company, and um, he he wrote that column. It was a it was a double page spread. It was actually in Risk magazine, um, and it was uh, it was beautifully written, but it was harrowing reading. Um, he, he's he, he was a very good journalist, um, and it it was yeah it it it, it, it was very uncomfortable reading. Um, and it, it kind of, if you weren't there on that day, obviously I wasn't there. We, we all watched it on CNN, et cetera, um, being back in the UK, but it kind of, it was the next best thing to being there. He, he, he spoke about, um, you know, just the kind of the, the, the confusion and people on the street and, you know, this is before the towers came down. It, he sets the scene beautifully, and it was a, a really, really great piece of journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was, I don't know whether it was in the following issue, whether it was, a, you know, a couple of months later, but it was in Risk magazine, and 
um, I, I'll never forget reading it. It was a really powerful piece of, of prose. Yeah, I remember I had started. I started here August of 2014. Uh, so when the uh, anniversary of the attacks came up, Anthony had forwarded me the piece, and I read it. And it, it really does. Uh, it's it's an incredible piece of journalism, and it really does uh, yeah. hit close to home. But so let's let's yeah. kind of we'll we'll brighten the mood a little bit uh, talking about yeah. you know your your background, kind of moving on. So how did you move into the role of uh, EIC at uh, at Waters? Okay, well, um, I came. I come from a, a teaching background, um, and so I, my, my degree subjects are English um, history and history of art. And um, I, I, from that, I moved into journalism, into sports journalism. Uh, just like uh, yourself and uh, and Tony, we we all come from a sports journalism background. Mm-hmm. Um, coming from South Africa, I was uh, heavily involved in, in cricket and um, and rugby. And um, and when I, uh, I I moved to the UK in 2000 with my wife at the time, and um, I couldn't get I just didn't get a, a job interview with any of the big sports magazines, and so I was offered the uh, deputy editorship of a business and technology magazine, and from there, shortly thereafter, I, I joined Risk Waters, um, editing a magazine called Derivatives and Risk Technology, um, and from that that kind of morphed into what was known as buy side uh, no sorry it was known as hedge fund and hedge fund and hedge fund and investment technology i think it was which then became buy side technology and and from there um i i was offered the role um in about 2010 i think as editor-in-chief of um of waters magazine and waters technology so it's been a kind of a um, a, a slightly circuitous route, I suppose, to to where I am now. <laughs> Isn't that always the case, though? You know, that gets you the yeah. you go you touch it a lot of different places, gain a lot of experience. So, as someone that's been in the industry for a while and 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 seen a lot, um, you know, we we have you on to talk about the trends for 2017. But before we even get to 2017, how in your time, you know, in starting August 2001. To now, what have been some of the biggest shifts or the most interesting shifts you've seen, kind of across the industry when it comes to, you know, maybe not, you know, financial technology, but even just finance in general, how you've seen the world evolve? Yeah, um, it's amazing. I've, I, you know, so I've covered the capital markets for 15 years now. Um, there have been some some huge changes, I think, and so in no particular order. Um, I think. The period around, um, you know, the early 2000s, that what that coincided with the um, um, with the leadership of um, of Bill Clinton, right? And the U.S. Uh, um, the U.S. economy just had kind of quarter after quarter after quarter incredible growth, and and so there was massive wealth creation and. Um, and the capital markets, relatively speaking, were very. Um, uh, there, there was, um, you know, in, in really good returns, um, almost irrespective of the ability of the asset manager um, to to produce those returns. It was more kind of luck than skill, I think. Mm-hmm. And you know, so so if you had money with an asset manager, you were getting double-digit returns without. You know, that's just. That was just the market was just incredible. It was an absolutely amazing time. I think uh, Warren Buffett um, was was quoted as saying, "A, a rising tide lifts all ships or boats," and that's exactly what it was. It was a rising tide, and everybody was making a huge amount of money. Um, it was also the, um, uh, relatively speaking, uh, risk management was in its nascence. So you know, the only kind of risk management that was um, that was considered then was kind of market risk. Credit risk wasn't really uh, um, a, a big issue right then. Um, and operational risk was also in its nascent. So there wasn't a hell of a lot of risk management going on. Um, and so ba- basic, you know, your risk management, there would be, you know, basic Monte Carlo simulations and kind of value at risk was a big thing. So just trying to understand exactly, put, trying to put a dollars and cents 
figure on on your ex, on your risk exposure. Um, that was kind of risk management. Um, so not much in the way of regulation. Um, I think what was really interesting as well is that also the technology industry um, serving the the capital markets was also, you know, in its infancy. Um, so there was, a, you know, there were some technology providers, but certainly not a not a, a, a it certainly wasn't a mature market or a sophisticated market. Um, and also, you know, software provision then you basically got a bunch of CDs and you downloaded the software onto onto servers or onto PCs or whatever. Um, it's you know the ASP was was relatively new. Um, the the forerunner to the ASP model was was known as the Bureau model, so kind of a little bit like the Bloomberg or the the, the, the Reuters model, where um, you have terminals and they um, you know provide data to those terminals. That was the kind of you know the forerunner to the ASP, which then became the forerunner to SaaS, which then became the forerunner pretty much to to cloud. So um, there have been, been massive changes, huge. It's, 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 uh, it's very difficult to even believe. It's a little bit like thinking, you know, back in the 70s, you could smoke on an international flight. In fact, in the <laughs> 80s, you could. In fact, in the, in the early 90s, you could even smoke on international flights. You could smoke on underground trains in, in London. It seems unimaginable that right. you could do that then. It, it's not a long time ago. Yeah. And, you know, if you consider... Um, the, where the industry was just 15 years ago, it's amazing how far we've come. Well, I think it's you make a great point about how you know you have the early 2000s where you kind of could just leave your money with an asset manager and you're going to get double-digit returns and really, like you said, more out of luck than skill. And then kind of right. as times get tough, then when times get tough, people recognize they can't kind of just sit back and kind of let things happen. They need to kind of be a little more proactive. And that's when you have right. the real development of technology. And I think you really see the innovative things because as the margins get tighter and as it gets more difficult to make money, you're going to try to figure out every way you can. And the, you know, the, the, the biggest way you can is through new innovative technology. Um, so I think it's right. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, back back then, no one was, it was was also the infancy of, of the derivatives industry. So derivatives were starting to be used by some of the more adventurous asset managers and, uh, and, and sell side firms. Um, but but why do you even why did you even need to look at, at at derivatives if you know equities were giving you double digit returns? But what happened um, you know from kind of 2006 2007 onwards, equities um, the, the returns were becoming more more slim, and so you started looking you know as a manager started looking elsewhere for for alpha and um, obviously derivatives, um, very basic derivatives then and. Um, and, and fixed income became the places where you would have to to look to to produce returns because you just weren't getting returns in the equities market. And it's still the same now. You know, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, you might get kind of two or three percent, but people want more than that. So you need to you need to um, you know you need to be more adventurous with it um, in terms of your investment strategy. Yeah, um, you need to include a lot more kind of esoteric instruments and stuff rather than just vanilla equities. Mm-hmm. So let's now let's let's take a look now, you know, going forward now into 2017, and as part of uh, you know what we do here at the end of the year for the last two weeks is you know each of the reporters is assigned a uh, and the editors are assigned a different uh, kind of topic to look at whether it's best to sell side technology best to buy side best to innovative and your particular uh, kind of year end recap is around yeah. 2017 trends and i know you have yeah. 10 trends that you feel are going to be big you know to keep an eye on you know uh, so we'll just run through those and you can kind of give us your quick perspective on each one of those uh, to start okay. The biggest one, yep. the one that was biggest in 2016 that everyone's talking about when it comes to fintech is obviously yep. blockchain. So tell us yep. what can we expect now heading into the new year around, uh, you know, arguably the, the most hype technology uh, that we've seen in a long time. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think I, I, I do think by the end of 2017, we are going to see some applications of um, of distributed ledger technology and or blockchain. Um, 
I think we're probably going to see stuff around smart contracts in a, in a live production environment and possibly something around um, settlement. Um, but my, my gut is that I think there are going to be a lot of very, very disappointed capital markets firms and fintechs provi fintech providers um, in terms of them not getting very much in the way of a return on their investment. I think, I think the big trend is going to be people realizing, actually, we put a huge amount of time, effort, and money into this, and actually, it's not going to revolutionize the, 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 the industry quite as much as we thought it was. Um, I think there's a kind of a bit of a, a, a herd mentality. I was in Germany fairly recently, in Hamburg and Berlin, and everybody is talking about blockchain and uh, distributed ledger technology. Cape Town in South Africa, everybody's you know, looking at, at it too. And I think there's a, a kind of a, there's, there's a, a lot of hype, and I think there's a herd mentality. I think everybody's piling in. Um, and, you know, when that happens, people are going to be very disappointed. I think the return on that investment, I think, I, I'm not convinced there's going to be much of a return at, at all. Um, I can see utilities popping up, and, you know, that's already happened. Um, but all the companies that are, that are part of those utilities, whether they'll get, see a, a return on that investment is, is questionable, in my opinion. Again, so I, I'll give my opinion. These... You know, clearly, I'm not a soothsayer, and no one really knows what's going to happen during 2017. We're just spitballing here and talking about what what I believe is, you know, are going to be the big drivers. Mm -hmm. um, so these are really just my opinion. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, I think yeah. you, you're you're definitely right, though. I mean, you saw with you know R3 and some of the firms' decisions to yeah. not re-up their subscription happening, you know, towards right. the end of the year this December. That it seems to be that trend, that kind of realization. It's kind of the the waking up at dawn after a big night out, the kind of, oh man, what did, what do we get ourselves into? You know, I think that there's some real implementations, like you said, around the smart contracts. I think that's a really interesting area. And I think a lot of the stuff on the, the edges, but in terms of that big disruptive kind of completely change in the game, I'm not sure yeah. if, if, you know, what the, the bill of goods that was sold to us, I'm not sure if they're going to really be able to, to cash that in. Let's, uh, yeah. let's move on to your, your second point around, uh, yeah. which is around performance uh, attribution for risk and reporting. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think this is going to be quite a big trend for um, 2017. Um, this is the convergence of performance measurement um, and the attribution of performance, um, attribute, so attributing performance to a particular part of your portfolio. Risk, um, so uh, measuring the risk um, contribution and the risk appetite um, and consumption in, in getting that performance, and then providing a sort of reporting component around that as well. So you've basically got performance attribution, risk, and reporting all in a single platform. Now, um, BISAM um, made the acquisition of Fin Analytica uh, early in the year, and Fin Analytica obviously brings uh, you know a hardcore risk focus to to BISAM. BISAM's been very interested in risk for. Um, a while, but obviously they, they, their sweet spot is performance and attribution. And uh, UBS Delta um, has, has, uh, has started folding um, their risk analytics into and around performance as well. And StatPro too. So, um, you know, classic um, performance and attribution is now going to be bolstered and, and reporting functionality too. And I think that's going to be a big... Um, a driver for 2017. I think a lot of asset management firms are going to be looking for additional functionality around pure um, uh, performance and attribution. So that's my second. To to that point around reporting and whatnot, your third point, Mifid to something that you have you know a stronger perspective on than than Anthony and I being you know based in London. Obviously, it's still going to impact firms over here, but being right in Europe, right in the thick of it, um, you have a great perspective on it. What, talk to us a little bit about Mifid two and kind of the impact you think it'll have on 2017. Okay, Mifid two. Um, is about two things, according to the regulators. They're, they're basically two primary tenets, two hooks that you can hang MIFID to on. One of them is creating a level playing field for all market participants. And the second is providing greater levels of protection to the man in the street. So um, what we're going to be seeing is, um, and I think is, 
there, there's, there's a kind of a, there's a key word that you can, that pulls all this stuff together, and that is greater transparency. It's, it's all about transparency. So, um, can, can you provide um, greater transparency around the services that you're providing the man in the street, the, the, the end investor, as, an, as a buy-side firm? Um, you taking their, their money, can you, can you show them? Is there, can, you, can you prove to them that, that you did what you said you were going to do? And that is really important. Okay? Now, that's going to mean different things to different um, firms. And the other thing as well is, is creating a level playing field. So um, trying to put all market participants on an equal footing so that they have the best opportunity to have for, for, for fairness in the marketplace. And so, it's not, look, it's not, a, it's not a hell of a lot different from the U.S. markets in terms of what Dodd-Frank seeks to, to create in the U.S. market. But um, MIFID II is, is, is going to require all market participants to, to store massive amounts of data so that they can, they can create snapshots of, um, of the market at, a, at any given time to show the regulators that they – um, they understood what was going on, that they can prove that they knew what was going on, that they had the kind of the expertise and the technology to systematize the, the process around their, their particular services. So that's, I think, is going to be a big driver too. And obviously, as we get closer to, to the start of 2018, there's going to be more and more, um, you know, focus around method too. Sure. Um, no, I mean, it's, we... It's, it's, it's a, sorry, carry on. Yeah, no, I was going to say, we've, we've heard a lot about it already at our conferences. I mean, I wrote a story about how we had one asset manager said he's praying for another delay. Whether he'll get that, yeah. I don't know about that. But yeah, that January 3rd, 2018 deadline is going to be here before you know it. And uh, it's certainly, you know, it's no longer kind of far away. It's something that firms need to address quickly and soon. So kind of right. staying in that same vein, um, TCA. Just, just, right? just one, one oh, sure. point, um, uh, Dan, and that is... You know, it, um, historically, the the U.S. markets, the, um, the 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 big regulators in the U.S., primarily the SEC, has been quite prescriptive in terms of its its regulation of 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 the capital markets. In other words, they've been they've provided quite a lot of detail around in terms of the framework of the regulation in the in Europe and the UK it's been far more principle based um, and the problem with prin a principle based is that um, a principle based uh, regulation is that it leaves a lot up to interpretation so um, all capital markets firms in Europe are going to need to kind of work out for themselves exactly what this regulation kind of means for them and, and for their clients. And so um, it's going to mean different things to different firms. Every firm is going to have a slightly different take. And it's not like it's, it's not going to be a box checking exercise. It's going to be, you know, what does this mean? What is this actually, what are the implications for us on a day-to-day -day basis? And how can we use technology in order to kind of meet those requirements? So that's, the, that's a big challenge. I think. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. Staying in that in that same yeah. vein, so to speak, uh, transaction cost analysis TCA. That was your fourth point of a big trend for 2017. Yeah, I think. Um, look, I don't want to go too much into this, but I think um, TCA historically has all been has has, has been around um, equities. It's been really easy for equities, uh, or relatively speaking, for the for TCA providers to provide. Um, um, the analysis around um, um, around equity transactions that is now um, is kind of moving towards fixed income, and I know that market, for example, um, they they seem to be um, very active in that space, and I know that um, you know the other uh, TCA providers, um, ITG, for example, um, they're also working on. Um, you know, on the fixed income side too. So I think we're going to see far greater um, TCA services functionality around fixed income 
um, going into 2017. Mm-hmm. Looking now at one of you know the I think cooler technologies uh, in the space, data analytics, and kind of e- even more so machine learning and artificial intelligence. It was a hot topic at Waters USA, our big event at the end of the year over here in New York. I know we've written a, a lot about it. Uh, what can we expect for 2017 out of that area? Um, I think more of the same. Um, I, I don't. Again, I don't think this is this is not revolutionary technology. Technology. It's it's evolutionary in the sense that um, how do you? I'm going to be talking specifically about data analytics here, but it can it applies to machine learning and AI because it, it, the, the principles is, is the same. And a lot of people actually use the terms interchangeably anyway. But th- this is all about capital market firms are sitting on huge quantities of data that data potentially represents a great deal of value to those firms in terms of um, helping them to make better investment decisions. So you, you, with huge quantities of data, you can't get people to sit there 24-7 extrapolating uh, or trying to understand meaning from, from all this data. Um, and so your analytics... Um, it be required to interrogate that data, to look for themes, to look for meaning, to look for value, um, to, to help drive the business going um, going forward. Um, I think we're kind of just scratching the surface right now, and so um, so data analytics, uh, AI, machine learning kind of holds the key to unlocking all the potential um, within market firms data. Mm-hmm. Liquidity and market access, specifically in the fixed income space, that's been a topic that's been discussed for a while now, but it's a discussion that's going to kind of continue to evolve and grow in uh, 2017. Yeah. So, I mean, the principle of, of, of sourcing liquidity is, is you know, it's, 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 that's nothing new at all, especially from a buy-side perspective. Buy-side firms don't want to – they're looking to, to, to move um, or, or to do big uh, – uh, or looking for for block liquidity, the last thing they want to do is have to go and find it themselves. They'd rather go to a, an organisation like um, um, uh, Liquidnet, for example, and you know they know that Liquidnet has a very deep and and reliable liquidity, and they know they can get trades done there. But um, so. Um, Liquidity for fixed income trading is, is, is more difficult, but there have been significant um, strides in, in recent months, and you've got Liquidnet has launched a, a, a fixed income dark pool, which is significant, and also um, MTS Bonpro has um, just set up an alliance with Bloomberg now. So uh, buy-side firms with Bloomberg terminals uh, will, for a fee, be able to access the MTS Bonpro liquidity um, fixed income liquidity. And that is significant um, because the last thing you want to do is have to go shopping around. You want to, you want liquidity, liquidity ideally to come to you as opposed to you hunting liquidity. And so I think um, uh, fixed income liquidity is going to be a big thing for, for 2017. Data costs. I mean, pricing on data seems to always be in the news. It always seems to be a hot topic. I know last podcast I had Max Bowie, editor of uh, Inside uh, Data Management on, and we kind of discussed right. that a little bit as well. It's it's obviously a big issue and seems to continue to be an issue for uh, 2017. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and to put it in perspective, I think you've got um, – you know, if you look at the costs incurred by capital markets firms, their bricks and mortar—that's their primary—that's a primary cost for them. Then you've got your your kind of technology costs as well. So all your um, your licensing costs and your hardware costs and your salaries and stuff. And then I think I think the next most the next largest cost incurred on an annual basis by capital markets firms is is their is their data costs. And um, so b- buying data. Um, is, is extremely um, expensive, and not only that, you, you find that a lot of capital markets firms buy the same data sets on, on you know, more than once from from providers. They they haven't a clue. You know, you've got different departments buying exactly the same data set, um, and so there's a lot of duplication. There's also they're buying a lot of data that is kind of redundant data they don't actually use, 
And so, um, so we've seen the emergence of companies like Rhymes Technologies. And what Rhymes does is basically they go to, to a capital market firm and say, you know, what, what data feeds, what data sets do you need? You come to us, we'll package it, um, all those data sets up for you, and we'll deliver only what you need. And, and we can give you far greater transparency in terms of price. Um, so they will go away and source it. And, um, you know, Rhymes has got 350-plus clients now, and they have 350 unique data feeds into those clients. So they kind of they – will, they will package data specifically for the client. Um, and that, I think, is a great service. That's an example of, of I think, where – data provision is, is going, um, and I think they're kind of leading the market right now in that respect. Next topic is one I know that's near and dear to your heart, having uh, written a big yeah. feature on it uh, this year, Lean and uh, Agile. Talk to us about how yeah. you know that you know will continue to grow in financial services. Yeah, well, well, look, Lean and Agile are, 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 are kind of, they, they are completely different. One is one is a startup methodology that's lean, and the other, agile, is a is a development uh, methodology. But but they, they share similar themes, and it's all about getting to market as quickly as possible, providing um, providing your consumers with specifically what they want, and not necessarily what you want to give them or what you assume they might want. Um, and it's about doing as much as you can for as little effort as possible. And there are a lot of firms that are using Agile to a certain, um, to a certain extent, but not, not fully. And I, look, I don't think it's, it's, it's entirely possible to, to, to be a, a total Agile shop. I think there's got to be a kind of a waterfall methodology um, incorporated sometime. But I think we're going to see a lot more agile development going on. So, and you know, agile is all about um, uh, you know short sprints, regular um, uh, deployment, uh, development, deployment, and delivery of uh, of technology. And the te- the development is all around is driven by consumer feedback. So, you know, what what your clients actually want, and not necessarily. Um, what you you might assume they want, and so it's very client centric, and I think um, it, you know that's the only way to develop. It, you know when you're looking to to get to market quickly and to minimise your costs. And then I think you know startups there, it seems as though you know everybody's got an incubator or an accelerator. Everybody is sponsoring startups or you know looking to acquire startups and. Um, you know, 90% of all startups kind of fail within the first two years. They don't get out the value of death, and um, and they die. And I think there's going to be a far greater um, uh, observance of startup of of lean startup methodologies to try to reduce the number of of deaths of uh, of, of early startups, um, so that. A lot of that kind of uh, intellectual property and a lot of the really exciting stuff that startups can provide capital markets firms doesn't get lost when um, w- when these companies fail. So I think, look, they're not the same thing. Lean and agile are not the same thing, but they are very often mentioned in the same breath. And I think we're going to see a lot from lean and agile going into 2017. The convergence of the front office is another point that you see uh, kind of being important in 2017. Talk a little bit about how you see that making an impact. Okay. I think, um, you know, most participants now have got their offices kind of sorted out. They've been doing that for the last decade or so. Um, in fact, up until about 2009, 10, 11, uh, there was, um, you know, quite a, a preoccupation with with trying to get the, trying to get the, the the front office up and running and and having all the technologies to allow buy side firms um, to to execute and, and to to manage money properly. I think what we're seeing now is the convergence of a lot of those technologies. So kind of single um, front office platforms. 
where 80 or 90 percent of the technology is commoditized to the extent that it's not going to provide you with a with a, uh, differentiation between you and the, and the and the company across the street, but the final 10%. So we're talking about the real smart, the, the execution component. So the algorithms and the, the execution management. Um, that's the stuff that helps differentiate uh, a lot of buy side firms. And so I suppose it's a little bit like uh, you know a, v, a, a V8 um, engine. You know the the the, the 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 really sexy stuff is not necessarily the displacement of the engine and the pistons and the and the engine block and stuff. It's the engine management system that makes a, an engine special, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all the really it's the it's the the little bits that sit on top of the of the engine that that kind of that that are, that is really responsible for the performance. And and I think the the buy side is like that too. So from a front office perspective, there's um, a lot of the technology is commoditized, and so it won't provide them uh, buy side firms with a competitive advantage. But it's the the execution through algorithms, for example, that um, that that final ten percent or even five percent that makes them special and helps them differentiate themselves. So I think we're going to see more focus on on that which differentiates buy side firms as opposed to allows them to be a player. Sure. Yeah. Last yep. but not least, uh, you know, it wouldn't be 27. It wouldn't be a look into 2017 without mentioning his name. President-elect Donald yep. Trump uh, gets inaugurated January 20th of 2017. Uh, he's already had clearly an impact on the markets. Um, yep. How do you feel, you know, things will shake out once he's actually in office and can start um, changing laws or repealing laws or adding laws? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Blimey, this guy, um, he, he takes to Twitter and, um, and he affects share prices within you know, <laughs> minutes. It's, it's astonishing the, the amount of influence he has. I think, um, uh, ironically, actually, I think, I think, I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but I actually think he might be really good for the US economy. <laughs> um, and I, I think, I think, um, yeah, so it, from a, so a macroeconomic perspective, I think he might be very good. Um, looking from, from a capital markets perspective, there's been talk about him uh, repealing certain regulations and stuff. Personally, personally, I, I, I can't see that happening. I, I, there's, there's lots of talk about it, but talk is, is cheap in our industry, and what is said and what actually happens are two entirely different things. I think our industry has been through so much soul-searching so so much difficult it's been over so much difficult terrain that i can't see the industry turning around and saying yeah let's get rid of all, let's get rid of the dodd frank act or or certain aspects of the dodd frank act i think i think the industry has come far to su- such a long way that i think I, I i just can't see that happening and i think what we can we might see the emergence of is is greater self-regulation so the so um Buy side and sell side firms actually looking to um, to to provide greater impetus around self-regulation. Obviously, supporting um, organisations like the SEC and and other um, regulatory bodies. But I think I, I just can't see the industry turning around and saying, "Okay, we've done regulation for the last eight years. Now, now let's you know." Let's loosen the the ties that bind us, and it's happy days again. I just can't see that. So that's my. I think it's going to be far more observance of of self regulation during 2017. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, he's obviously not in office yet, but if it's proven anything, you know, it was a lot of conjecture, a lot of shouting, and a lot of making big bold promises. But how much he's actually going to be able to come through? You said exactly. Talk is cheap at the end of the day, especially in this space. So. How much we'll really see some of the implementations that he's calling for or called for during the uh, you know the campaigning um, will be interesting. 
but that was yeah. that was great. So that's a great look at you know a lot of different spaces, uh, a lot of different spaces in the industry. Um, before I let mm. you go, we usually yeah. you know we talk a little non fintech stuff, and uh, it seems only mm. fitting. I know you're a big sportsman. You know you were yeah. you you're a former former rugby player, correct? Yeah, I played I played a bit of rugby. Yeah. And then really your passion now is around cycling, right? Yeah, I raced um, and I raced tri- triathlons too. Um, bike, I, I did a lot, of, a lot of bike racing and triathlons, and and played some cricket. And so I, I kind of I I I, I turned my hand at at a few things. Yeah. Well, as a cyclist, I have to ask you this because I feel like every cyclist mm. has one. What's your you know, what's your worst crash story? I feel like every cyclist, you guys get beat up all the time on yeah. the road. You're not respected out there. And every cyclist has some horror story of, you know, flipping, yeah. you know, ass over tea kettle over a car or something. So what's what's your, your war story of being out there on the roads and riding? Um, you know, touch wood, I, 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 I haven't uh, I haven't had too many. I, uh, you know, you, I, you, everybody's. There's there's an expression in the you know in 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 cycling, and they say they're two types of cyclists. They're cyclists who have crashed, and they're cyclists who are going to crash. That's it. <laughs> there are only two types. And sooner or later, your luck is going to run out, and you're going to and you're going to you're going to stack it. Um, I think probably one of my best ones um, was um, I'd just been out to visit my parents in Cape Town. Um, this is going back about three years, and um, I wanted to and and I've done. I'd done, uh, I don't know, a couple, uh, probably seven, eight, nine hundred kilometers of cycling in the week while I was out there, in a week or ten days. And I came back and I was nice and brown and I was, I was quite lean and stuff. And, and I came back to the British winter. And, um, you know, anybody who's lived in a British winter, you'll know it's like someone like, like God has, has just, you know, drawn this, this slate gray curtain across the sky for like five months of the year. It's just appalling. <laughs> And um, I, w- I wanted to, to try to r- retain my form, so I went out, and it was it was cold that day. And um, I came to a stop street, and it, and um, these were untreated roads. There was no there was no salt on the roads, and um, and so there was ice. And I I stacked it immediately. And instead of so, and I was okay, but and, and instead of turning around, I just thought to myself, okay, I've just got to be careful. So I carried on riding, and I stacked it properly about. Um, uh, I don't know, about an hour later on this descent. And I um, I, I wasn't going massive. I was doing 40 or 50 Ks now. What's that, 30 miles an hour? But I hit this piece of, I hit this ice. It was black ice. And I slid for, I don't know, 50 meters maybe on my hip and then hit a wall. And oh, and I wasn't too badly banged up. Okay, there was a bit of, there was a bit of meat and stuff hanging off. And, um, <laughs> but uh, and I thought to myself, well, I better get home now. I'm still like, a good two hours from home and um so i got i was on my way home and i stopped at one of the shops um to get some cookies because i was feeling a bit sorry for myself <laughs> and the um and the shop assistant uh, he, he saw my my hip and there's all this kind of this meat hanging off and stuff and um and almost passed out it was really quite funny but the really good part of the story is i got home took a photograph and sent it to this girl that i'd met um, uh, about a, 18 months or two years before that, at the top of a mountain in uh, in France, and um, she was quite impressed. and um, And her response to me was, "When are we going to get together for uh, for a, a you know a meal or, or whatever?" And I said, "Well, what are the options?" And it was like, "Meet at Liverpool Street for coffee. Meet at Liverpool Street for lunch. Meet at Liverpool Street for dinner. Meet for." coffee in the West End, or I'll come to your house for um, for dinner. And I said, let's go for option five. <laughs> anyway, she, long story short, she agreed to marry me. And, <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, uh, to cut a, an even longer story short, um, we're not getting married any longer. Um, we were supposed to get married in a week's time, but uh, we, we, we're no longer doing that. But um, that's uh, it's amazing what uh, a little bit of you know, meat hanging off a bit of bone can do for, uh, for your chicks dig scars, uh, Victor, chicks dig scars. Yeah. They love it. They, they love exactly. it. Yeah. 
Yeah, a it good, enhances your attraction to the opposite sex for sure. Exactly. Yeah, a good scar can yeah. get you a lot of places. I, I when I was a kid, I was I don't. It's not nearly as masculine as a story as yours, but I was selling Girl Scout cookies door to door with my sister, and I had of my yeah, of course, exactly. And I had my yeah. hands in my pocket, and I uh, she told the joke, and I tripped over my feet because I'm very clumsy, and landed <laughs> right on my chin and cracked yeah. it wide open, and uh, went to you know they brought me to the emergency room and the doctor kind of looked at it he's like yeah. well it's in a weird spot so we could stitch it up or we could just do a butterfly which is a fancy word for putting a band-aid on it so they just yeah. put a band-aid on it and uh lo and behold i have a nice little uh um nice little uh scar on my chin so on the days yeah. when i actually am clean shaven which is few and far between just because i grow hair right. like a, a wolverine um but on the days yeah. that you can see my chin you have a little scar there, yeah. so people always ask, and you know, I try to tell a cooler story than selling Girl Scout cookies. But you're, uh, yeah, sliding on ice into uh, into the wall, cutting some meat off. That's some serious stuff. That was the other question I was gonna ask you. What's the what's the fastest? Because you've you know done some serious racing. You've been on some serious teams. Yeah. What's what's the fastest you've clocked on your uh, on your bike while cycling? Yeah, um, this is a this is a genuine story. I've clocked 120 kilometers an hour. Which Jeez. is what is that? 70, 70 something. Jeez. And it wasn't even. It wasn't on a descent. It was. Um, it was. It was. Um, it was motor pacing a truck. Um, and this is back in the days when I was. I don't know. I was about twenty one, twenty two. And the, uh, south south of Johannesburg, there's a place called Eichenhof. Um, it's farmland, and um, there are no stop street, there are no traffic lights. There's there's just these long straight roads. Um, and we used to, to wait for huge, large lorries um, at, at uh, you know one one particular junction, and we'd kind of wait there. And these lorries would come past, and um, and uh, we would we would hop on behind these lorries, and um, we would ride the biggest gear. The biggest gear we had then was a 53 tooth chainring at the front and 12 sprocket at the back. It's 119.6 inch gear. And we would spin that at about 120 RPM. That would get us up to 120 kilometers an hour, or about 130 RPM. But you, you would only, you know, you would, you would basically spin as quickly as you can, and then you would, you would, you would rest um, because you were being sucked along by this massive truck. The, the, the slipstream effect was incredible behind those things. And would I do it now? No, of course not. <laughs> you, hit a, you, hit, you hit a stone at that, that speed. And and you're probably going to die. Yeah, I was going to say it'll do a little bit more than take a little chunk off, a little meat off the hip. That's gonna that's gonna yeah. put you in some bad shape. Yeah, but those roads are perfectly flat, um, and you just hope that you know those 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 van those big trucks that don't slow down very quickly, so you can usually slow down quicker than them and stuff. But uh, you know what I what I recommend? No, I mean it's just stupid. It's crazy. And also we we, we uh, back then. You know, that, this this was like 19, what was it, the 1987, 88, 89. They weren't, we weren't even wearing bike helmets then. We would just yeah, clock caps on our heads. I mean, it's just insanity, this sort of stuff. But then again, you know, you're 21 years old. You think you're bulletproof. And, right. Um, you know, you just haven't had your ass kicked properly yet. And, yeah. You know, when that happens, then you kind of realize that actually it's quite sore. But look, before, before I leave you... Um, Dan, I, I, this is a this is a really good story, um, and I'm sure. Look, I'm sure no one's listening to this podcast any longer because boy, we've, been, <laughs> we've we've been talking a bit. Um, um, but um, there was a, a story. Uh, there's um, there's a guy called, by the name of Ben Ray who I go to the mountains with every year to the to the Alps, and um, this, this is going back about seven or eight years, and Ben and I had, um, he, he was actually the, the, the ex-publisher um, of, of Waters magazine. And we'd, we'd, written, we'd ridden um, over the, the French border into Italy down to a little town called Sousa, and we went up this, this mountain called Mont Genève. Oh, sorry, no, it wasn't Mont Genève. It was, um, it was the Colla della Fenestra, um, the, the mountain of the window. Okay, the, the the coal of the window, mm. and um, it's incredible. Um, and the first about eleven or twelve kilometers is on um, tarred, it's on asphalt, and then it becomes a dirt road. It's and it's it's used by the Italian military um, for all their 
um, with their armored cars and stuff. It's an appalling road. But it's a 19-kilometer climb, and it tops out at like 2,300 meters or whatever above sea level. It's a really tough climb. Anyway, we, went, we got over the top, and I was ahead of Ben. And, um, and you know, we, 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 we go quite quickly down, down these descents. And um, I came around a corner, and, and there had been heavy rain a, a night or two before, and there was debris on the road. And I, I'd managed to kind of swerve and miss it. But um, he was maybe a couple of minutes behind me and he hit this debris and he crashed and he must have been crashed. He must have crashed at like, I don't know, 50 miles an hour, 45 miles an hour. It was properly fast. And he stacked it and he, he landed on his hip and, and his elbow, you know, all the kind of the, the, your ankle, your knee, your hip, your elbow, your wrist, all those, those bony parts. They, they, those are the parts that hit the, the ground first. And, I, I saw him coming, and then I couldn't see him any longer, so I turned out, I thought, oh, God, no, I hope he hasn't crashed. Rode up the mountain, and there he was. Um, he had crashed. And I said, listen, mate, you know, we, we, need to, we need to carry on riding because, you know, there, there's nothing here. Mm-hmm. There are no farmhouses. There's no cell phone signal. We didn't have phones on us. Um, but we need to carry on riding. So we carried on riding, and, of course, his hip was, there was blood everywhere and stuff. But he, he's quite a stoic guy. He's quite a tough bugger. And uh, he, we carried on riding. Mm-hmm. And we rode down into the Sestriere Valley, up over the ski resort of Sestriere, down into the next valley, up Mont Genève, back into France. And so it was about 80 Ks he rode. And um, we didn't know that he'd actually broken his wrist. So he had a broken <laughs> wrist, and he rode 80 kilometers with a broken wrist. <laughs> And um, I remember we, we got back to our hotel room and usually at the end of our rides, we kind of empty. So we were, we were really hungry. And um, the, the big decision for us is, do we eat or do we go to hospital? <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a no-brainer. We had to eat. But we, so we, he, I've got a photograph of him eating pasta, uh, uh, this kind of this shop-made pasta. But we didn't have spoons. And so he, he'd taken the lens from his sunglass out of his, out of the frames, and was scooping this kind of this this, this kind of tuna pasta into his mouth with the lens of a sunglass. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> and then uh, once he once he satisfied his hunger, and after a couple of beers, then I took him up to uh, to the uh, to the medical room, and they X-rayed his, his wrist. And uh, the next time I saw him, he had this his arm was in plaster, wow. or in, in a in a fiberglass uh, cast. Yeah, but then which then had to be cut off the following morning because his wrist was still swelling. <laughs> the swelling hadn't gone. And so it was throbbing and stuff. And so they had to be cut off and then put on again later on. So it was quite an epic story. But not once did he whinge. He whinged about his cycling shorts because they were shredded and those were his favorite cycling shorts. <laughs> he whinged that his bar tape on his handlebars was screwed because, you know, he'd, he'd come off at, you know, 40 miles an hour or whatever, mm-hmm. but he didn't whinge about the pain at all, which uh, I think is, is, it says quite a bit about him as a person. Yeah, there you go. F- lest yeah. anyone think that cyclists aren't tough, some of the toughest SOBs out there. They're, uh, they can deal yeah. with pain. They can they can do it all. Well, I, th- I think that's a great note and a great story to leave it on. So, uh, Victor, I really yeah. appreciate you uh, you coming on. This was great to hear, you know, your background, your thoughts on the, how the market shifted and then where you see it going in 2017. So, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today brilliant it was lovely and thanks uh thanks for for offering me a spot on your fantastic show sure Um, dad thanks very much indeed of course so thanks so much for you for listening and uh be sure to tune back in next thursday